Hello, friends. Welcome back to an episode of Be Here for a While. Today's episode of Be Here for a While is brought to you just by some new friends of mine. Some new uh, friends of the podcast. Some new businesses I would love for you to support. And I'm going to tell you about them later. But trust me, they're good. I mean, one of them, Gilded Grotto. My favorite necklace of all time I purchased from her. So... I'm going to tell you about them and uh, hope you get involved. Um, okay, I'm not going to speak too long on this because uh, on the intro because I'm just really, really excited about my guest this week. But I do want to say thank you so much for your guys' support and um, and your, your kind messages to me on uh, Instagram. Uh, it, it means the world to me. And uh, your five-star reviews and positive ratings, it just... It just, it means the world to me, and I, I really appreciate it, and I love you guys, and let me know how you're doing. This is obviously one of the craziest times, I mean, since I've been alive. Well, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just, it's crazy, and it's, and I know it's taking a huge emotional toll on all of us, and, you know, if you just need to chat, let let me know how you're feeling, and also, I want to remind you to uh, go easy on yourself. It's It's okay to feel stressed or anxious or just heartbroken for what's going on it's it's okay it's it is I mean frankly I feel it would be impossible not to but we just have to keep um elevating each other and uh you know the uh, change isn't going to come if we if we give up anytime soon so we just have to keep keep going but I love you guys, and I, yeah, I hope you're doing okay. Um, okay, I'm super, super excited about my guest today. So I discovered her. This is um, Bridgette Davis. Uh, she wrote a book about her mother called The World According to Fanny Davis. And I discovered her probably like maybe back in February or early. I don't remember. Um, because I was, uh, going to have the host of the Family Secrets podcast, uh, Danny Shapiro on my podcast. And so then I began listening to her whole podcast. It's very good. I recommend it. And, um, I heard the episode with, uh, Bridget and I, I think it's probably one of my favorite stories I've ever heard. I instantly, I mean, I cried and I listened to it several times and I called my mom right afterwards and I was like, you have to hear this story. It's incredible. Called my boyfriend. And uh, I just think you're absolutely going to fall in love with Bridget. And yeah, she she starts off um, this episode telling the story I fell in love with, the yellow shoes story. And she just talks about her experience um, being a, a young black girl growing up in Detroit um, and uh, just the experiences her parents and grandparents have had to go through. And just she has a beautiful and kind and eloquent way of educating us. And I think we all need to hear it. So without further ado, give it up for Bridgette Davis. And guys, please do what you can to support Black-owned businesses. All of my ads this week are Black-owned businesses, and they are all amazing products and people. And yeah, and also buy Bridget's book, uh, The World According to Fanny Davis. It is beautifully written, as you'll hear us talk about in uh, the podcast. Well, the reason why I discovered you was because of the Family Secrets podcast. Mm. And uh, she's great. She's so sweet. And yeah. um, it's a, and it's a great idea for a show too. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
And I just fell in love with your story and your mom and you, I hope that's not creepy. Um, after nope. your, <laughs> after your yellow shoes story. And I yeah. then began telling everyone, I called my mom right afterwards. I was like, mom, isn't this the most beautiful story I've ever heard? And I called my boyfriend. I was like, yeah. So I'm so, so excited to talk to you. And could you tell uh, my listeners your yellow shoes story? I can. Sure. Okay. So anyway, thanks for having me on. This is fun. I appreciate it. Um, the, the shoe story took place in my life when I was in first grade. I went to school and I was just going up to my teacher's desk to show her an assignment. She gave my work one star instead of two. I noticed that. But okay. And I was about to sit down when she stopped me and she said, you sure do have a lot of shoes. Now, the reason that was really odd to me is because the week before she had asked what my father did for a living. Mm -hmm. And I had told her he doesn't work, which was basically true. He was disabled. Um, but then she said, what does your mother do? And I knew I couldn't tell her. So I lied and I said, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Because my mom was a numbers runner, which we'll talk about, I'm yes. sure. I mean, yes. it's in the title of the book. But <laughs> essentially, she was running this underground lottery business. Mm -hmm. And because it was underground, it was legal. It was illegal, mm -hmm. technically. And I knew I couldn't tell anyone. Even at six years old, I knew I couldn't tell anyone. So I'm in school with my teacher. And she's already asked me what my mom did for a living. And I thought I had taking care of that. So here we are another day and she's telling me, you sure do have a lot of shoes. And I nodded because what else do you do when someone says that? And you're so young. Mm -hmm. I just nodded. And um, she said to me, before you sit down, I want you to name every pair of shoes that you have. Go ahead. And I knew it was not a game. I could tell from her voice it was serious. And it basically felt like a test mm -hmm. when I thought, well, I, I want to do well. I want to make sure I get this right. So I went through this mental inventory of all the shoes that were lining my bedroom closet. And I very like deliberately and responsibly started naming all of my shoes, like my black and white polka dotted ones with the bow tie and my buckled ruby red ones, you know, and my <laughs> salmon pink lace-ups, like I named them all. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, 10 pairs is an awful lot. Oh. So I just sat down and I thought it was over. But the next day she called me back to her desk, Miss Miller. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, you did not tell me that you had a white pair of shoes too. And sure enough, I was literally, I remember it vividly, I was wearing a white version of a pair that I had worn before and they were buckled with little lace trims. Mm -hmm. And I looked down at my feet and I, I basically thought I had been caught in a lie. I thought I had done something wrong and I apologized. I just said to her, I'm, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And she dismissed me with a wave of her hand, just said, sit down. And at that point, I really thought that I was in trouble, that I had clearly done something wrong and I needed to tell my mom. And I did. 
I went home and that evening I waited till the right moment and I said to her, basically, I forgot to tell my teacher about my 11th pair of shoes. She asked me about all of them and I named them all except for that 11th pair. And my mom got so angry. Like I, at that point in my life, had never seen her that angry. Mm -hmm. And I thought that she was angry at me. I thought I was about to get a spanking, quite Mm -hmm. frankly. But she said, that is none of her damn business. Mm -hmm. Who does that teacher think she is? So I'm relieved because she's not mad at me. Um, Mm -hmm. But suddenly she said to me, get your coat and let's go. Now I'm terrified again because I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, we're going to go up to this school and, you know, she's going to confront Miss Miller. Uh, So of course I did what I was told and got in the car and my mom starts driving and I noticed that she's not driving to the school. Mm -hmm. And in fact, my mother drove us to Saks Fifth Avenue. So we get out of the car, we go into the store, and she takes me up to the children's shoe department. Yeah. And she says to me, I mean, I just looked at all these beautiful shoes on display. Um, My mom pointed to a a gorgeous pair of yellow patent leather shoes. And Mm -hmm. she said to me, those are pretty. And then she bought them for me. She pulled out a $100 bill and she paid for those shoes. Wow. And, and, you know, I do remember the saleswoman looking at her in this way that I thought that's how Miss Miller looked at me. Mm-hmm. But my mother didn't seem to notice. She just bought them and we left. And then she said to me as we were on our way home, she said, listen, you're going to wear these shoes to school tomorrow. You hear me? And you better tell that damn teacher of yours that you actually have a dozen pairs of shoes. <laughs> It's just the most beautiful story. Yeah. And I did it. I was scared, nervous, but I did it. I went up to my teacher. I told her that next day, you know, Miss Miller, I actually have a dozen pairs of shoes. And I'll always remember how she looked at me, you know. She basically just said, sit down and never spoke to me again. Like never said another word to me. Which was fine you know yeah yeah (laughs) yeah that was fine I didn't have to defend my things or justify having them and I always say to people I mean I've told that story many times now Mm -hmm. but I always say to people that what my mom did many things in that instance but most of all she showed me that no one is entitled to tell me what I'm entitled to. No Mm -hmm. one gets to tell me what I'm entitled to. And I'm grateful she didn't handle that differently. Mm -hmm. You know, if she had said, oh, just ignore her. Yeah. Just ignore Miss Miller. That would have been one thing. If she had said, well, you don't have to wear all your shoes to school. That way Mm -hmm. she doesn't have to be bothering you. If she had handled it any other way, I actually believe I might have been developing feelings of embarrassment and shame around what she did for a living. Mm -hmm. And I actually never had those feelings. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how much she understood my mom, what she was doing for me in that moment. Mm -hmm. I know she had a visceral gut reaction, Mm -hmm. you know, 
to the temerity of someone once again trying to tell this little black girl or any black person what mm-hmm. they deserve. Yeah. You know? I also, the thing that strikes me about it too is that was at a point too, yeah, where you could have not only felt um, shame or embarrassment about what your mom did, but about your own self-worth and your own self-esteem. And she must have instilled confidence at a time when you needed it most. Like you, you're yeah. allowed to have nice things. And I mean, in my opinion, I want to be like, well, I'm sorry that the the white teacher's salary is probably not comparable to what your mom was making. And she's probably very irritated by it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, all the yeah. things, but like, you don't have to feel bad about having a mom who loves you and wants you to have nice things. And additionally, is basically forced into running the numbers by virtue of there not being many opportunities then for her to make the kind of money to support a family. Like, yeah. Like, I mean, she took the best option available to her for what she wanted for her mm-hmm. family. She mm-hmm. wanted us to thrive, not just survive, to thrive. And yeah. also my mother worked really hard for that money. Mm-hmm. She earned it. Yeah. And at the same time, even though in a different world, in a different time, she might've done something else with her life. The truth is she was really, um, well positioned, uh, for what she did. And it mm-hmm. actually ended up providing a kind of service that I'm not sure anything else could have at the time. It was so unique to the moment we were living in mm-hmm. that thanks to my mom, you know, people were able to uh, get windfalls of cash that provided certain things they really needed. Mm-hmm. And also it, the money she made allowed her to be a philanthropist. I got something for you that is going to amplify your home decor. So Joel the Artist is an impact-driven fine art and home decor brand that allows you to purchase one-of-a-kind pieces for your home using resin, fire glass, genuine crystals, and glass beads. Joel specializes in high quality and new items are added regularly. For every every order received, 10% of your sales will be donated to a rotating list of charities. Using the code RACHEL, and that's spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L, will get you 10% off any custom or canvas order. I guarantee you're going to love them. Check her out at www.shopjoel, that's S-H-O-P-J-O-L.com. And if you use code Rachel, you will get 10% off any custom or canvas order. I think you said in your your book, or I formed this own opinion, but I think it was in your book, that, um, that uh, was like kind of like, what's the difference between that and the Kennedy starting their wealth on bootlegging? And is that... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, same thing. Like when the when in those early years, when I was still thinking about whether to write this story, I was really constantly convincing myself not to do it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I just had this feeling that it's been a secret my whole life. I'm going to keep it that way because I have no idea how people will judge my mom. Mm-hmm. And I was just not interested in um, the possibility that she would be judged. Mm-hmm for her choices. And so I thought, "Eh, I won't tell it, but it kept bothering me. Um, It wouldn't let me not tell it, you know? Mm -hmm. And the thing that ultimately gave me, well, several things did, but one thing in particular that gave me a little courage was to think back exactly about, you know, uh, Joe Kennedy Mm -hmm. and to think about how he launched, you know, his, essentially his wealth. Now, there are those who dispute whether or not he was a bootlegger, 
-hmm. but that didn't matter to me. What mattered was the possibility that he could have been Mm -hmm. and that he could have taken that uh, money and poured it into legitimate sort of businesses that gave him the equivalent of, you know, uh, generational wealth for his family. Mm-hmm. Like that was the point yeah. of it all, you know, when he, when he was building his business and, and after the book came out, Oh my God, Rachel, so many people of every persuasion and hue have come up to me to tell me about someone in their family who was engaged in some enterprise that was considered, you know, mm-hmm. or underground or not quite legal, whatever euphemism they use. Mm-hmm. It really seems to me that it is specifically a kind of immigrant story. Mm-hmm. Because so many folks were like, yeah, when my people first came to this country, my ancestors, like, this is what they did. Yeah. And then the subsequent generations were able to get a foothold in a more quote unquote traditional way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I think it's a quintessential American story. Yeah, that's very interesting. I wonder if there's enough, um, well, of course, I think there would be enough stories that if you, I'm giving you a book idea, uh, wrote a book about all the various different immigrants and uh, what their uh, more underground business was, what they did to survive and provide like every different type, the Irish, the, you know, the uh, I Italians. Mean, look, I, it's a great idea because my inbox just, constantly fills up with these mm-hmm. stories particularly when the book was was first you know published mm-hmm. and it's exactly what you're saying i started making a list i mean i'm talking about puerto rican mm-hmm. uh you know uh definitely irish american definitely mm-hmm. greek american italian american jewish american i mean the list was so long and uh-huh. so wide that i and and here's the wild thing in this case, they, many of them were telling me that their family members were specifically in the numbers. Mm-hmm. That That's that was the operation that they were engaging in. Mm-hmm. And people tend to think that the numbers were just a black thing, you mm-hmm. know? And they certainly were created by, apparently one black man came up with this ingenious, elegant system. Mm-hmm. But it became, you know, sort of like this democratic, means of getting a foothold mm-hmm. yeah so, yeah i yeah. think it would be fascinating to hear all those different stories together um mm-hmm. so i feel like you it, you know your mom taught you and your siblings confidence entrepreneurial skills uh money skills but mm-hmm. i got i was really fascinated when she went or when you went into how her her father was able to loan her nine hundred dollars uh, early on and her and you went and discovered that your grandfather was very a very successful landowner so yeah. I could you tell me a little bit about that and then additionally how he got so lucky I thought the statement that you uh, you quoted someone I forgot their name that um, if you if you want to follow the trail of of lynchings uh, follow like stolen black land yeah so could you tell me a little a bit about your grandpa, how he started, and if you know how he managed to escape that horrible fate? Yeah, I don't know how he escaped that fate. I don't. Mm-hmm. But Pap, as they called him, was this incredible figure. I never met him. He died the year I was born. But 
I heard so much about him. My mother spoke about him with such love and respect and so did her siblings. So I knew that he was important for all kinds of reasons. Imagine this man born in the 19th century who goes on to have t nine children who grow up to be adults. He lost, wow. they lost a child when she was an infant, but nine children. And his wife never had to work outside the home once they married. He ensured that she was provided for and so were his children. And, you know, he figured out how to acquire a trade, a skill. He was a plasterer mm -hmm. and a builder. And he used that, that skill to actually start his own business at one point. And he built uh, buildings and plastered buildings literally for all kinds of clients, including the city of Nashville. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty extraordinary. Did he face unbelievable racism in the process? Yes, there are those stories too, what he had to withstand and endure. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he was doing something that was really vital and actually pretty commonplace at the time. He was buying land. Mm -hmm. African-Americans owned a lot of land um, back at the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. And it was systematic, systematically confiscated from them. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that's both beautiful and um, potentially terrifying, that he was slowly buying property and building on it. He built the family compound on it. And you know he had other property that he actually allowed his children to manage. It was pretty beautiful. Wow. But throughout all of this, if you look at history, Black men were being lynched mm -hmm. for their property mm -hmm. and their land. So, so at the same time, he was building a beautiful life for his family. He was also increasingly getting closer to danger. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Which, if you think about it, I began to understand a little bit more how my mother could be so brave, mm -hmm. even though really none of her siblings did what she did. None of them entered into something so obviously high risk mm -hmm. and gambled in the, quite that way to ensure a great life for their families. So there was something about my mother that was distinctive, even in her own family. But mm -hmm. look at the lessons that she took from her father mm -hmm. you know, and applied them mm -hmm. to the situation she found herself in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a pretty incredible story, you know, when you, the beauty of history is that it really helps you to contextualize your loved one's lives. And what mm -hmm. it did for me was it just made my admiration, both for my grandfather mm -hmm. and my mother, to just swell, you mm -hmm. know? And so now it's the kind of thing I can say to my own children. You, you, you need to know what you come from. Mm -hmm. Pretty incredible people. Yeah, really. I mean, very yeah. inspiring. Do you yeah. think... Do you think your mom, because I, I, I love that your mom was not willing to, she was going to be dressed nice. She was not going to dumb herself down. She was yeah. going to go on these fabulous vacations to Miami. She, she deserved to be there, if not more than anyone else. I just love that yeah. about her. Do yeah. you think if, was she always, because I'm thinking about the moment where your grandfather, um, at the time they weren't allowed to wear white collars, even though he was basically the owner of, or he was the owner of the business, interacting right. with people that they were maybe even white people that were renting from him. Right. Well, white folks were his clients. And if he right. showed up at a client's property, he'd better not wear a white shirt with a collar. Because they needed to look better than him or whatever. Yeah, you can't look uppity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Do you think if your mom was faced with a similar situation, do you think that she would dumb herself down or do you think she'd be like, no, mink coat, I'm going for it? Yeah, I think, again, when I speak about how she found the thing that was really good for her, mm-hmm. I think that uh, it would have been, I can't think of a scenario in which my mom would have been okay working in a world where that mattered, in a white world, essentially, mm-hmm. um, because she loved her people. She loved running things, too. Mm-hmm. And she liked that control. And also, she definitely had such a sense of self that I don't know what job would have been worth it to her mm-hmm. to have to, as you say, dumb yourself down or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of dim her light mm-hmm. so that she could basically be acceptable, be, mm-hmm. be palatable. Now, mind you, my mom wasn't flashy. That's the irony too. Mm-hmm. It was never about see me, see me, see me. She's pretty understated. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is my mom barely wore makeup. Her hair was beautiful, naturally beautiful, but she wasn't fussy with it. Like she mm-hmm. didn't, do a lot with it all the time. She was just as willing to throw an Hermes scarf around it and just keep going. Like yeah. that was her thing. Like keep it's, it moving. It's, it's still an Hermes scarf though. Yes, <laughs> but I see what you're saying. It was maybe um, quality over uh, excess or like it didn't need to be tons of makeup and stuff. It was like, right. here, here, I, here's a beautiful quality product that makes me feel good. And yes. yeah. 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 Like that was it, you know? Yeah. And uh, that, I mean, that's honestly one of the best definitions of class. I think people that don't have to go, you know, yeah, over the top. Exactly. Exactly. Like why, you know, that mm-hmm. was her whole thing. I'm not doing this to show you anything. I'm doing mm-hmm. this for self uh, gratification. I like it. Mm-hmm. I like these clothes. I like, you know, nice, beautiful things around me. And I kind of don't care what you think, mm-hmm. you know? That's great. Yeah, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm still working on that. I mean, that, I was thinking about that when you were saying, like, your mom was just born with that quality. Like, yeah, it's yeah. something I am still working on, too, like not being uh, apologetic for being myself and, like, uh, or, you know, just trying to, in, in certain moments, not be too much so that other people are, are, are can handle me or something. Like Exactly. I, I think it's rare to be born with the quality that your mom was born with. And I just think it's a beautiful thing that she, you know, passed that down to you guys. Yeah. Um, So you do such a beautiful job of describing what it felt like to be living in Detroit during the sixties and seventies. Like it's almost like, well, maybe it's just because I had just recently been to Detroit and um, went and saw a lot of the city. But it's almost like you can you describe it in a way that I can feel even what the air might feel like being there. Oh, good! I love yeah, that. it's 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 wonderful. It's yeah, and uh, and your description of your house just was magical. I was like that the X is an O coffee table. I feel like is right <laughs> up my alley. But um, um, but yeah, it just it just seemed like a a very exciting uh, place to grow up during that time, but also a very scary time i mean the way your father was treated with his uh was it uh, disability settlement yeah. is just yeah. um 
unbelievably insulting. Maybe you can describe for me like a little bit about your dad too, uh, you know, working, oh, and they were only giving black people uh, the most dangerous job in the factory, right. which is- Right, exactly. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, my very first novel, uh, I only have two novels, but my first one <laughs> is called- Still pretty impressive. <laughs> I know, well, yeah. Um, it's called Shifting Through Neutral, and that was a coming-of-age story in which I really wanted to center on this father-daughter story, and, and the father is completely based on my dad, because mm. I knew only later in life how rare it was to have such a beautiful relationship, you know, with my dad and to be a total daddy's girl. Um, even with this amazing mother, I ended up being a daddy's girl, you know, mm. and there was no conflict in that. And I, I, I feel very fortunate for that, about that. But a lot of it was about who he was, you know, he uh, and my mom were childhood sweethearts. They were married by the time they were in their teens and they migrated to Detroit together. They had three children by then. Mm -hmm. And they were in the beginning working hard to try to figure out how to make it. Mm -hmm. And in, at first my mother thought like many women, I'll come, he'll get a good job in the factory, I'll stay at home and take care of the children. But my dad could not keep a job. And believe me, it wasn't because he wasn't trying. Okay guys, if you want some super unique and stylish jewelry pieces, I gotta tell you about Gilded Grotto. So let me tell you about them. I discovered uh, Kara and Gilded Grotto when I went to the farmer's market. Um, it's the Bald Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Farmer's Market. And I immediately, like I, I definitely should not have been spending money that day besides just on groceries, but I was like, I have to have this necklace. It was the, it is the coolest necklace I've ever owned. It's my favorite necklace. Uh, and her pieces are super unique. So let me just tell you about her. So Kara, the founder of Gilded Grotto, has always had a love for crystals, nature, and all things mystical. She also happens to love everything gold. Me too. And gaudy. Me too. <laughs> During summer 2018, she combined all these elements and started creating her own one-of-a-kind crystal jewelry. All of her pieces are handmade with gold-filled wire, gold chain, and quality hand-picked crystals. This is a line for specially made for those who want to get their chakras right, but still want to be flashy. Each crystal used has been cleansed and charged with love and good intentions. So I'd love for you guys to check her out. Her website is www.gildedgrotto.com. That's G-I-L-D-E-D-G-R-O-T-T-O. -T -T She's also on Instagram at Gilded Grotto. And um, right now she is giving 20% of proceeds this month are going to various organizations that are pushing for police reform and justice for families affected by police brutality. So check her out. I mean, you can find my photo of me wearing one of the necklaces on my Instagram. Uh, it's, I mean, her pieces are gorgeous. So yeah, the thing to know about my dad is that he and my mom came to uh, Detroit together um, because they were, you know, childhood sweethearts and they already had three children, but really they were only in their twenties, you know, mm -hmm. picking up this uh, and leaving this life that, you know, was the only thing they'd ever known. And they were coming North so he could try to find decent work and make a good salary and everyone make a good wage. Everyone has said that, you know, Detroit city was the place to be because they had the auto plants and he thought I'll get a job, you know, in one of the factories. And he discovered that he was going to be the 
last hired and the first fired in every situation and be given the toughest jobs, the most dangerous ones. He was mm -hmm. a heat treater, which was pretty dangerous. Can you explain um, what that is? I don't know myself exactly, except that it, I know it meant melting metals oh my gosh. in the factory and that you were around really high temperatures of heat on a regular basis, you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, he really couldn't keep steady work. And that's what changed everything for them. Suddenly they'd been this pretty solid working lower middle class family in Nashville. And they came to the, the, the North with no network and no family around them and no safety net. Mm -hmm. And with unbelievable discrimination, which they weren't ready for, they were used to the Southern racism, mm -hmm. but they got to the North and, you know, Dr. King famously said he had never seen the kind of racism he experienced in Chicago and he included Alabama in that, you know, wow. so that's what they experienced too. It was virulent uh -huh. and unexpected. So when he couldn't find steady work, when they couldn't find decent housing, when they were paying an exorbitant amount of money um, in rent to live in these inferior, you know, um, apartment buildings, essentially they, they found themselves plunged into poverty. Mm -hmm. And that is when my mother said, I've got to figure something out. And it wasn't overnight. They mm -hmm. lived like that for two years. Mm -hmm. and that is around the same time that she called her parents and she borrowed you know she was like I need help her mom said well what do you need she said as much as you can send me and she was their only daughter who had migrated north at that point and I can only speculate that they really wanted her to make it mm -hmm. and um so they sent her what I would believe I actually believe it was their life savings. Wow. Because nine hundred dollars in nineteen fifty-five oh, yeah. six or whenever it was, let's just say in the fifties. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't even I, I, I don't know could, the conversion, but it'd be yeah, quite a bit like more. You could quickly check that, but it was yeah. a lot. Yeah. It was a lot. Mm -hmm. Like it was a lot of money. And so that really enabled her to get on her feet and for the family to get a little more stability. But she also knew that that money would run out mm -hmm. and that she had to figure out something. And that was literally when she decided she wanted to go into business mm -hmm. for herself and actually be a bookie for all of these folks in the community who were playing this game, this, this uh, you know, ubiquitous lottery game that mm -hmm. people called the numbers. And people were playing it for pennies and nickels and dimes. Mm -hmm. And that was how she started by taking their, their money that they were betting, mm -hmm. um, using to bet these on these three digit numbers with. The Indigo tribe takes self-care to a gorgeous, gorgeous level. So basically, the Indigo Tribe is a small custom dye studio and design business, and she uses natural and low toxic dyes, organic ingredients, and even hand-picked lavender, I love that, in her eye pillows and sleep masks. Um, she just makes really, really pretty, sustainable, giftable items, and uh, she can do custom orders as well. I ordered some sleep masks. I cannot sleep without them. They're just very soothing, very pretty, and I, I just 
I don't know. It, it just make me happy. So if you want to purchase some of our products, go to www.theindigotribe.com. That's T-H-E-I-N-D-I-G-O-T-R-I-B-E. And if you use the code BEHERE10, you can get 10% off any size order and shipping is free over $35. Also follow her on Instagram at the Indigo Tribe. I think this is a very sad and interesting aspect to this, the racism that was involved with the um, the predatory housing loans. Oh How your, your mom had to make a lot of money in order to mm. give you guys a nice life. And so can you explain that loan thing is it it blows my mind. It was your setup. They set you up to fail. Cause you, yeah. so could you explain a little bit of that? I mean, that's such a great point you're making that some people don't actually notice that first of all, she had to figure out how to make a lot of money mm-hmm. so she could have enough money to buy a house in the only way available to African-Americans at the time. Right. Mm-hmm. And for your listeners who don't know about this, uh, it was pretty, pre- it was like virulent and prevalent throughout. Mm-hmm. May I ask you a quick question? Mm-hmm. Do you prefer African-American over, over black? Because I, I go back and forth. Yeah, because there's some people that are like, I'm, I'm not from Africa or whatever. They're like, so I'm not an African-American. I, that's weird. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's All right, weird. so either one's fine. Just wanted to make yeah, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and you can, I go back and forth all the time. Okay. Anyway, so African-American is like seven syllables. So, you know. Yeah, true, <laughs> yeah. true. Um, so, yeah, uh, basically, this is how it went down. If you were Black, mm-hmm. you could not actually acquire a bank loan to get a mortgage to buy a home. Sounds crazy. It's horrible. But it was actually federal policy. How did they get away with that? They created something called red lines around certain communities, districts. Those districts within the red lines, they considered high risk. So what made an area high risk? If an African-American family lived in that community, lived in anywhere in the vicinity, it was considered high risk. For no, for no reason, no, no reason. Cause nope. you're yeah. a Negro, you yeah. must be high risk. Yeah. So what that then allowed the, uh, the actual real estate industry to do was to say, hey, we cannot lend this money to you because it's too high risk. And more importantly, the Federal Housing Authority, the FHA, will not insure the loan. What bank, what lender is going to then provide you with those resources if the federal government is not backing the loan? Yeah. So they had a legal reason to deny Black folks loans. And this was pretty prevalent if there was a Black family that managed to get a loan, they were the exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. So what did folks do who wanted a piece of the American dream? And what gives you that more than owning your own home? Well, in enters this other option, a predatory one called contract sales. You could buy your home on contract, meaning if you were a Black man or woman, you could go to the seller directly and purchase your home. The bank's not part of it. You have a contract together. Um, the Dow payment required was exorbitant. Mm-hmm. 
in my mother's case, like 30% down. And the interest rate was crazy. Mm-hmm. It could be 11%. Wow. At the same time that the president of the United States, back when my mother bought her home, it was President Kennedy, he was constantly lowering the interest rate for the average American home buyer because he wanted it to be attractive. He wanted it to be available. So the interest rates were, I don't remember the exact number, but let's say they were 5%. Mm-hmm. And he was constantly lowering them. So this already shows you how a certain group of people are given essentially affirmative action. Mm -hmm. They're giving, given a leg up by the government Mm -hmm. to do better in their lives. Whereas this other group who are trying to use the same dollars, right? That Mm -hmm. they've had to really go through much more to earn Mm -hmm. to do the same thing but it's not available to them. So they're, and they're putting an even larger roadblock against them. They've already had to work harder. Yeah. do various things to earn the same amount of money, but now let's set them back even further. Right. And you know how you were saying my grandfather was lucky. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. My mother was extremely lucky because what often would happen when people entered into these arrangements is the seller had all the power Mm -hmm. and it was basically you had none of the advantages of of buying a home and all the disadvantages of renting it was Mm -hmm. like that so that if you missed one payment the seller could take back the house Mm -hmm. I don't care how many years in you are uh, of paying every month on this property if Mm -hmm. you missed a payment the seller said okay the house is mine again there were people who that's turned un- over their homes like that over and over and over and unbelievable stress unbelievable stress your mom had a to be a lot under. of stress a lot of stress and so there was that whole need to make sure that her house was not taken out from up under her because oh by the way she built no equity in the home mm. the whole time she was paying on it it's only mm-hmm. after she fully paid for it could she actually have the deed and say it was hers and build some equity. So terrible. And and at the same time, in my mother's way of thinking, it was an opportunity Mm -hmm. to get a family home, a beautiful one. Yeah. So I only learned really that, that whole dynamic and and how she bought her home. When I was researching the book, she Mm -hmm. never told us. Wow. Your mom spent a lot of time protecting you guys from the stress she must have been feeling on a minute to minute basis. I mean, I honestly can't even imagine. And it, it just goes to show like when people have that, you know, dumb argument that like right now, for example, like, well, everyone's got the same opportunities if they just work hard. Like it's no, no, no. It's systematically set up that it's, it's not the same opportunities. I don't care how you and this has been going, I mean, that's going on for forever. Like that argument is completely, you know, yeah. invalid. I mean, the, the situation I just described to you is why African-Americans have a wealth, you know, gap that's so gigantic compared mm-hmm. to whites. Not because whites work harder, mm-hmm. because so you're not your literally, but your ancestors were able to purchase that home, which mm-hmm. grew in value, which was then handed down to generations Mm -hmm. after who were able to then inherit generational wealth. Mm -hmm. And that sets you up in a way that people 
never want to acknowledge. That's not about you individually working hard. Yeah. That's about what you came into the game with. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, it's like a little bit of everything. Like my parents' first house, uh, it was, they, they bought it from, uh, I mean, it was probably, it was only like $30,000 or something, but. But was that was cheaper. a lot. Yeah, there's a lot at the time, but they bought it from for cheap from like a family member or relative. And then like, that's the the part of the little gift you get to give. And then exactly. uh, my, my parents have bailed me out of many things. And they're, yeah. you know, my, then when they finally were able to build a house, my grandfather uh, built it for free. I mean, they bought the supplies, but like he was doing all the building for my parents. Like, that's how people move along. I don't, right. And if you don't right. have that opportunity, if it's a constant setback, then- exactly. Yeah, there's a reason for it. So, okay, back to um, back to Detroit during that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you describe uh, the Detroit riots. I mean, it just sounds absolutely terrifying. I mean, you were what seven, saying you were laying on the ground, like hoping not to get by stray bullets. Yeah, I so, was barely seven. I've been living with that so much lately for the obvious reason. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's been on my mind so much. I've, I'm that little seven-year-old again, mm-hmm. because I know what it's like for the National Guard to come into your private space, into your, you know, down your residential streets, down your block. Mm-hmm. As a seven-year-old, seeing those tanks rolling down the street with those men uh, on top of them, their guns poised, was mm-hmm. like, shocking because Mm -hmm. what a shattering of my world Mm -hmm. I knew nothing like that before and I couldn't understand it and I only knew on some visceral level that we were in danger Mm -hmm. like I knew that our family was in danger in a particular way Mm -hmm. I knew it I mean yes there were reports on the news not unlike what we have seen recently Mm -hmm. Um, I will say that this time Many of us are saying this time feels so different because so many people are out in the streets. It's all over the world. It's not just Black mm-hmm. Americans who are out there pushing um, for this kind of change. But you know what's wild? The Detroit uprising, we never in Detroit call it a riot. We call mm-hmm. it an uprising. Um, we call it the Great Rebellion. You know, uh, It started because of uh, police brutality. Mm-hmm. That's why it started. Yeah, those the, the, the people with the blind blind pig. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was the point that mm-hmm. they came in and they busted this place where people were celebrating one man going off to Vietnam and one who was just re- returning home. That was mm-hmm. what they were celebrating. And police barged and, in. You know the usual. And, and people fighting for our country. Let's not take that away. That like they're. I mean that are getting no absolute no rights in their own country. Yeah. The ironies are many, Mm -hmm. but the similarities are many too, you know, and I just thought, how is it, you know, that 53 years later, here we are, on the one hand, it's just like, oh my God, oh my God, my son, my 20-year-old son and my 16-year-old daughter have to experience this. I thought that I had absorbed Mm -hmm. that trauma enough and worked hard throughout my life so that we'd be at a place where we wouldn't have to do that again. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't have to be in that moment again. But of course, I was fooling myself because when you have systemic poison in a system, when it's baked into the cake, 
mm-hmm. you know, it's going to keep coming up until it's genuinely dealt with, like mm-hmm. honestly and genuinely and, and with determination. And are we there? I don't know. I, 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 I hope so. I mean, I don't know. One of the questions I was going to ask you is, did you, if you could have predicted the future, would you have ever thought that, yeah, once you had absorbed all that trauma and, and racism that your 20 year old and 16 year old would have easier, much easier lives and not be, have to be as afraid? Like, could you ever have imagined it just didn't get better? Well, because my mom has seen so much, mm-hmm. my mom and dad in their lifetimes, because she, she selectively told stories of what her own father went through. Mm-hmm. I knew that this was the worst thing handed down in this country. You know, I knew it. I mean, how could I not know when I'm six years old and I'm faced with this uh, confrontational teacher who forces me out of my innocence? Mm-hmm. You know, it ended well, so to speak. But I often think about why I still remember it with such resonance and power. Mm-hmm. Something that happened to me at six, because it ultimately it was traumatic. Mm-hmm. And I think the trauma of it ultimately was just the awareness that there are people out there who resent my very existence. Mm-hmm. Wow. And you lost your innocence at such a young age, like being faced with that, like, yeah, even after your mom did everything to protect you, it's like, you can't, you can't, it has to just, it has to change within the people. I mean, it's just that, I mean, that woman, sadly, there's still so many people like that. And it's just, but you know, I heard Ibram X. Kendi, do you know about him? Who? his name is Ibram X. Kendi, uh-huh. and he has this beautiful, he has two books on the New York Times bestseller list right now. Yeah. And one of them is How to Be an Anti-Racist. And he was on on the cable news mm-hmm. yesterday or maybe- I, ha- I have time. heard of his book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you know, he was like, look, people say you can't change the hearts and minds of folks, even if you change policy. He's like, I don't believe in that. I think changing policy does make a difference. Mm-hmm. And he used a couple of great examples, one of which was the Affordable Care Act. Look how many people were against that mm-hmm. until it was enacted and they started incorporating it into their lives. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly they even Republicans wouldn't let congressional members take it away. Mm-hmm. So policy can shift things. You know, Folks used to fight hard to keep Black children from being in classrooms with white kids. That's one of the reasons my parents left Nashville. Mm-hmm. And today you wouldn't hear anyone in an uproar over that, mm-hmm. right? We could talk about equity and resources to students in different school systems, but no one is gonna tell you the last thing they want is for their white child to sit next to a black one mm-hmm. in a classroom. I'm just speaking in broad terms. Yeah, so you're saying like, we've at least evolved from that. I'm saying that the reason for that evolution mm-hmm. is because policy was put in place. That's yeah. what he's saying. People fought and pushed and demanded that policy be put in place for those things that shifted the culture forward a bit. Mm-hmm. And so if we wait for people's minds and hearts to shift, no. Mm. Okay, that, but, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. It, it, and then 
then if they're forced into being a more empathetic person and I honestly think something along the lines though too of like how how do you teach people to know how privileged they are like how, like like some sort of like equalizing effect of like that they know what it would feel like to have that I mean I'm not trying to say we should go backwards and give people those predatory loans but that just I think if they even felt it for one day they might be like oh okay like it because when it doesn't happen to them they don't necessarily know but it's funny because they say this is a pretty good litmus test if you ask any white American mm -hmm. would you rather be black now they might tell you oh I wish I had this style and their swagger and mm -hmm. their talent and you know yeah, no, no. Would you rather move through the world with black skin? Yeah, um, I think no one would want to take on that burden. Of course not. I mean, and that tells you everything, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying I wouldn't, but I I know what you're asking. Or yourself, you know, like yeah. I mean, there are there are mixed race marriages, and there are many. I have friends. I have white friends with black children. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And yes, their consciousness is raised in a way it never would have been otherwise, even though they're already decent people. Mm -hmm. But having a black child they have to take out into the world, they have mm -hmm. to send out into the world, absolutely increases their, their consciousness. So mm -hmm. I, that's one way. But yeah. imagine yourself moving through the world where, and you have this identifiable darker skin. Mm -hmm. um, very few white Americans, if they're truthful, would sign on for that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that is the exact proof. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No equity in this culture. Mm -hmm. that, is, that is actually the, the perfect proof. Yeah. yeah. That, do um, One other quick thing that I really liked that your grandpa did that I'm just remembering. Um, he bought a car for his two sons. Yeah. Because can you tell that story real quick? And then I guess we should probably wrap up soon. Yeah, that's also, I love that you shared that because um, this is a lovely way for me to segue into the fact that I'm actually writing the screenplay for this memoir. Oh yeah, my God, that's going to be beautiful. Back to that, but oh, I'm excited. very quickly. But in, in, in the process, I'm seeing connections that I don't necessarily see. I didn't necessarily see when I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. And one of them is how my grandfather bought this car for the boys as his, as his daughter, as my aunt Florence puts it, he got a car for the boys because they were coming up that hill at night. And you know, the white high school was down there and the white kids would be hanging around and pap knew that any one of those white girls could scream rape. Mm -hmm. And then the boys lives would be over. So rather than put them in a situation where they could be vulnerable to that accusation, he got them a car because a car creates a kind of autonomy and mm -hmm. a kind of protection against white racism. Like I, I will tell you, there is an incredible scholar who did just that, who talked about black mobility and mm -hmm. why a car is so important in black culture. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and my grandfather was an example of that. And then fast forward all these years, my mother bought me a car when I was 17. On the one hand, that was consistent with all of her beautiful indulgences mm -hmm. and, and the way that she really 
um, you know, showed her love for us by indulging us with beautiful and wonderful things. Mm -hmm. Materialism was a part of it for sure. But there was a practical piece Mm -hmm. also. My mother knew where we lived. My mother knew I was a young woman Mm -hmm. in, in this culture. And she knew that I was a little safer mm-hmm. in my own car traveling around. Mm-hmm. And that had echoes for me as I was working on the script. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> echoes with what my, fa- my grandfather did many years ago for a very similar reason. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the resonances are there. And I guess what I want to say, because you, you noticed that example, that people don't even understand what um, material things and quote unquote wealth means to black folks. Mm-hmm. It's not the same. We're not acquiring this just to have it. We're not going after it in quite the same way as the typical white American is. It's not for the sake of, or for our own self indulgence. It's often more protection. Mm-hmm. It's wow. one more safety net, one more way to inure us from this like, stressful existence mm-hmm. how else can i try my best to create some safety some mm-hmm. kind of safety zone and money is a way mm-hmm. no, no question that is uh, i'm really glad you fully explained all that because that is an element i didn't think about and i'm sure many of my listeners have never thought about that before that yeah it is yeah. it's interesting i mean every little way you you african-americans have to move about their life is just so much different in the sense yeah. of like a, it's you, yeah, you have to set up little barriers. How do I get this person to respect me? How do I do, how do I stay safe? How do I, so yeah, yeah that's how interesting. Do I, uh, how do I get my dignity? You know, yeah. how do I self care? How do I, you know, uh, basically choose when to fight back? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really excited that you're writing a screenplay. I can, I like, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm like psychic or anything, but like, I, I just like, right when you said it, I was like, oh, that's going to be a big hit. Like I can visually see it being oh, like, I, I mean, you and, psychic. Yeah, <laughs> I might be, I might be, I'm better with it for other people than in my own self, but I sometimes can just be like, oh yeah, that's going to be, I can already see, I can see exactly what it will look like. And yeah, that's especially yeah. the way you write. I mean, like I said about your, your description of Detroit during that time, it was like, I felt like I was there, which is really That's cool. Great. That's great. Thank you. How, yeah, uh, wish me luck. Wish me luck. You. Oh my God. Good luck with that. How far along are you in it? The screenplay? I'm, I'm really close to finishing a first draft. That's great. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. So one well, of many, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, congratulations. I, uh, if you can write a book, you can write a screenplay. I've written many screenplays. Oh, you uh, have? Yeah. I went to grad school for it, but it, um, it, the thought of writing a book is way more daunting than a screenplay. There's a lot okay. more space on that page. Yeah. Okay. That's comforting, actually. Yeah. I think you've already tackled the hard, the hardest way to do it, and okay. you already are, have the, like you already did all the research for the right. book. Now you just that is true. Dialogue is- to it. Yeah. I definitely have pretty good source material. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, thank you yeah. so much for doing this. Um, yeah. I. Yeah, I'm just so impressed with what you're doing. And thank you for educating me and my listeners further. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for just inviting me. I really appreciate it. I do. Well, uh, stay in touch and let me know how it goes with the screenplay. I'll be rooting for you. Thank you.